Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. And this month in Naked Neuroscience, we'll be opening our minds with a special Q&A show. We'll be discussing treatments for depression. So for the first time in my life, I did, I took antidepressants. You know, it felt like I'd been a car that had something wrong with the engine and it was kind of dragging along the road and someone had fixed it and it was just rolling really beautifully. Discovering how we can change our behaviour for the better. Some research a little while ago saying that a new habit takes about 82 days to form. So actually, you know, we can be patient with ourselves as things get going. It's not instant. And divulging tricks to help you lose those extra pounds. You sit in front of the telly and eat food. You don't realise quite how much you're eating. You don't attend to it and you, you don't feel full so quickly. We've had stacks of great questions in from you and accrued a brainy panel to tackle them. They are... I'm Dr Roger Kingley. I work in Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Trust as a clinical psychologist with a particular research interest in male psychological health. My name is Liz Fraser. I'm an author and broadcaster and I have recently set up the website inmyheadcase.com to completely change the face of mental health. Martin O'Neill and I use basic neuroscience techniques to investigate decision-making mechanisms. I'm Katie Manning and I'm a PhD student here at Cambridge in the Department of Psychiatry and I use MRI imaging to look at connectivity in the brain. And with them, we'll be finding out why chocolate helps to boost happiness. We'll be stumping scientists with the question, is there such a thing as free will or is life all predetermined? And have you ever heard or seen things that other people don't? So experienced a hallucination. Apparently 10% of the population do. And we'll be discussing the case of a musician who hears music when he's nodding off to sleep. First up, though, David Bailey got in touch, asking why are brain conditions and mental health problems so common? In children, there's been a 25-fold increase in autism diagnosis over the last 20 years. Now, one in every 100 primary school children will be affected in the UK, whilst one in every 20 school children will have a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. 
And it's not only children. Overall, the percentage of adults diagnosed with mental ill health has steadily increased. The best estimates today suggest that one in four people in the UK will experience a problem every year, with 10% of the population affected by, for example, depression or anxiety. So is it just that we're better at recognising conditions and seeking help, or could something about today's society be to blame? First up... Well, we know from the statistics you've already mentioned that uh, all of our families and all of our workplaces, we're going to have people around us who have these issues if we haven't got them ourselves. If we go back evolutionarily, one of the things we know is, is that life is always very challenging and potentially very stressful. So right from the word go, we've always faced a lot of different threats in the environment. And threats can produce stress in all sorts of different ways. And we know that stress is a big driver of psychological issues of all kinds. And then to come back to the present, of course, especially since the recession, since around 2007, 2008, well, most people, most families, at least in the UK, often work harder. And is there anything that we can do to try and help protect ourselves against this increasing mental health problem? There's a huge amount we can do. So whether that's giving ourselves a little more time to look after ourselves, whether it's doing things like uh, using relaxation techniques or increasingly uh, meditation techniques, so much is known about how to protect ourselves. It is fairly uh, destigmatised now. I, I think you know people are not frightened anymore. They they still are, but less so to put their hand up and say, you know, I'm not I'm not dealing with things very well. I'm not you know the word coping. I'm not coping very well. We have to be so careful when we talk about increase in in the numbers of of, of cases of things. Is it just because we're reporting it more? Why would we be reporting it more? Because the knowledge is out there, so we know much more about it. Therefore, we're reporting it more. Therefore, there is more diagnosis, and therefore there is more prescriptions. I don't agree with that. I think that the evidence seems to suggest that they are, in fact, increasing. And and what you were talking about earlier about stress. And it's funny because people often say, well, you know, life is easy. You know, we're not at war. We're not, you know, know, there aren't the sort of the, the daily manual struggles that people used to have. But actually, one of the things that we know causes a lot of, I suppose, stress and unhappiness in people is a difference between expectation and reality. And so I think so many people now are not living the normal life path that they perhaps expected to live. That sort of very traditional, grow up, you know, get a job, get married, have a house, you know, which is maybe not crazy, but at least it has a stability. And because that perhaps boring, but at least stable framework just doesn't exist for so many people, the levels of stress are really on the increase. And as you quite rightly said, stress then causes all of these problems. And just to point out, it's, uh, it's well known that social support can be really important as a buffer against stress, against psychological issues, perhaps even against physical issues as well. So that's something else we can do is actively seek out support. Well, although there's still a stigma that surrounds mental health, there's now more options and availability of support, particularly with things like autism, when a child can be diagnosed and that diagnosis uh, opens up the availability of various forms of support, whether that be in education or outside of education, that now getting that diagnosis is actually important in terms of getting the help for somebody's child whereas in the past if that was just a stigmatizing diagnosis then that was perhaps something to shy away from. I think um, from a a basic neuroscience perspective as well you know we've come to appreciate just how intricately designed the brain is you know we have billions of neurons with billions of connections between neurons billions of chemicals 
So it's actually perhaps not that surprising, you know, that when there's a little glitch in the system, there can be these profound effects on mental processes, emotional processes, you know, and I think that sort of appreciation helps is the destigmatization as well and, and is what's almost making mental disorders seem like they're becoming more common, but perhaps not, perhaps they've always been around, but we're just, you know, more, more willing to accept them now and, and address those issues. And there's another area of neuroscience that's really kind of gaining a lot of information and also momentum, and that's the neuroscience of resilience. So how we can become more resilient to these stresses and how we can maintain a flourishing and happy mind and and society as well. Next question, I think this leads on rather nicely. Does chocolate have an antidepressant effect? In my experience, eating uh, half a bar or even sometimes an entire bar of chocolate can make me feel much happier. Are there any neurochemical basis for that? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, chocolate raises blood sugar levels quite dramatically and quickly, and that increases glucose delivery to the brain, which is basically fuel to the brain, among other nutrients. So if you give the brain a short, sharp boost of one of its essential fuels, then, yeah, you can enhance the the brain's happiness, I guess. I mean, we often hear reports of all sorts of wonderful qualities of chocolate, which we'd all love to be absolutely true. Actually, there's a review that was done by Parker and colleagues, and that was just looking across at what might be the antidepressant effects of chocolate. And there are some small levels of psychoactive substances in chocolate, but it's in much smaller quantities than you find in lots of other foods. By psychoactive substances, are you talking like there's miniature traces of LSD-type compounds in chocolate? No, so we're talking sort of stimulants like caffeine sort of stimulants, and very, very small amounts. I was just wondering, I'm also really interested in how much of that is because we've been told that chocolate, we've been sold that chocolate is good and it makes you feel good and the adverts are great and there are half-naked ladies and they're eating chocolate and how wonderful they feel. You know, how much of that has gone into our minds? If we'd been told that carrots, oh my God, carrots, aren't they the best things ever? You know, how much how much is a feedback loop of what we've been told? Yeah, that chocolate is wonderful. But we have to remember that chocolate was, of course, in, you know, it goes back thousands of years and so there were people in the jungle at one point who ate cocoa beans and for the reasons that you were saying, you know, it, it does do something chemically to you. But the chocolate that we eat, it's basically sugar, a little bit of cocoa, but the rest is sugar and blah, blah. So a huge effect must be to do with that. And there was a paper published, I had a quick search, there was a paper published in the Journal of Chromatography A by Polo Diaz and colleagues last year. And they found that they did some clever chromatography mass spectrophometry, I can't even say it, <laughs> chromatography mass spectrometry of uh, chocolate. And they found that the highest serotonin content, so that's like a happy chemical in the brain, was found in chocolate with a cocoa mass content of over 85%. As well as wanting that serotonin dopamine release in our brain, we also enjoy the fat and of the milk, high milk content, and also the sugar burst. Because actually, if you eat 85% chocolate, it's, it's pretty unpalatable. I mean, it's really bitter, and it's, uh, I quite like it, but it, there's a percentage beyond which most people really don't enjoy it at all, exactly. So that there's a perfect ratio, which I'm sure all chocolate manufacturers spend all day trying to find, which is the one that just ticks all the all the boxes but advertising i think the advertising has a lot a lot to ask for here i think it is also the the rapid metabolism the rapid release as well because let's not forget the complex carbohydrates you know like sugar is present in healthier foods and in 
fruit, for example, bananas are a high source of um, tryptophan, which is a precursor for serotonin, but it takes a lot longer for the body to break down these chemicals and process them and deliver them to the system, whereas with chocolate and cocoa, this is a short, sharp um, boost, which also, I think, could result in, in the crash. It's like, you know, a post-glucose sort of crash. It's actually that, that high sugar and, and a high fat content as well that you find in a lot of other foods that people eat that give you, you know, donuts and cakes, and it gives you that short, sharp boost. Thank you. And next question now. Michael Malone has been in touch saying people seem to want treatment for depression, but most are afraid of the side effects of the medications. And what are your thoughts on this? And he says, thank you. Depression is a, a huge issue. It's important that when we have the, the feelings or the symptoms that we do get help because there are various treatments, both uh, medical and psychological, that can be really helpful. So it's great to actually go and get help in the first place. As a psychologist, I think it's I'm not qualified to talk about the medications per se, but what I would say is if there are any kind of doubts there at all, the first thing to do is to consult one's GP, speak to a pharmacist right from the off or a psychiatrist uh, if available and get good information really right from the start because it's very common that you know we're all different individual people so genetically different medications affect people in different ways and there can be interactions and stuff between medications so it's really important to get good quality advice really right from the start and that can really be helpful that's the the medication side of it also as a psychologist have to say that we know very many psychological methods there's a very good evidence base that they're helpful depression with many types of psychological therapy whether it's cbt cognitive behavioral therapy psychodynamic ways of working it's probably more likely than not that we're going to get some symptom reduction if we engage well in those therapies so there's an awful lot that can be done is is the message i think one of the most difficult things is just drawing that line between how much can you cope with can you manage without medication and using alternative therapies i think many people find it very difficult to know at what point can i not manage this anymore on my own at what point should i go and get some sort of chem you know it's a chemical treatment at the end of the day and of course the the most difficult thing with a lot of the drugs that will then be given to you is that many of their side effects are very similar to the original problem that you were having. So some treatments for antidepressant can actually cause anxiety, they can cause paranoia, they can cause more feelings of depression. So the last thing you want to do is to take something which makes that even worse. And if you look at the history of medicine and the history of diagnosis and treatment, it tends to go through quite quite long waves but it does go through waves and perhaps we've just come through 50 years of chemical intervention or treatment which we've been learning as we go along what works what doesn't you know we don't tend to electrocute people anymore and, and do that kind of thing but now it's this and maybe we will now perhaps come to a time where we're all going okay if the prescriptions of antidepressants have gone up that much have we now reached the point where we are going to say this is ridiculous actually as more people are learning about mindfulness and learning about yoga and learning about all this stuff which we've seen is very hippy trippy and weird and is now becoming so mainstream if we really can show that that can cause a real benefit to you without having to take some chemical treatment then maybe we're going to come into a new time and a new way of treatment but if you need the medication i mean really need the medication i think people have to be very very careful to understand when you do you do because some things we can't just deal with on our own Martin, Katie, and there has been kind of this big wave that neuroscience and psychiatry can be cured by chemistry. 
but there's all these receptors all over the brain and actually all over the body. So if you're going to be treating a particular condition with a chemical like an antidepressant, for example, then it will have side effects in other areas of the brain. Do you think that we're learning more now about discrete circuits in the brain so that we can start targeting particular conditions in a much more focused way without these side effects that people really do worry about? Or or is the answer yoga or meditation? Are we going to learn more about the neuroscience of yoga and meditation in the future? I think uh, a lot of the early pharmaceutical treatments for mental health disorders were almost sort of magic bullet treatments. I mean, we, we didn't really know what Prozac and fluoxetine were really doing when they were initially being used or widely, but we, we've got a much better understanding of how these drugs are acting now, and new drugs are constantly being developed to target more specifically the receptor subtypes, your dopamine, as a neurotransmitter in the brain, which is involved in depression and anxiety, along with serotonin and noradrenaline, but these don't just act upon one receptor type, they have multiple receptor subtypes that they act upon. We're getting more information indicating, you know, what receptor subtypes might be more effective to target, to treat more specifically anxiety without having a a side effect on sleeping, for example, like insomnia. These uh, treatments are getting more focused with an increase in knowledge of basic neuroscience. Can I just throw a little personal sort of anecdote in here? I remember uh, about 14 years ago, after my second child was born, I went into a, a, a very big postnatal depression after that. And I put up with it for a while, and I saw a lot of symptoms coming back that I recognised from 10 years previously, and I thought, I just don't want to go there again. So for the first time in my life, I did. I took antidepressants, and I, I have a diary of the time. I felt absolutely wonderful. I felt wonderful for about six months while I was sick. And, and I remember thinking... Do other people live like this? Because this is fantastic. I can do everything. I can go shopping and I can deal with this and I'm, I'm pretty happy. I'm lovely to be around. I, you know, it felt like I'd been a car that had something wrong with the engine. There was just something wrong. It was kind of dragging along the road and someone had fixed it. And it was just rolling really beautifully. You know, I stayed on it for a year because they said a minimum of a year. And, and that was 15 or 14 years ago and I've never done it since. But... I think that if people really feel that they are really trying hard and it's not working, you know, not to feel bad for, you know, for seeking some kind of, of medical or, or chemical intervention because just to have that relief, it, it's like a, it's like going on holiday for a while. It, it makes everything so much easier and then you can start to deal with the problems that caused it while being in a much stronger place. But then what happened after that year of taking this medication? Well, I came off it rather more quickly than I perhaps should have because I wanted to have another child. <laughs> right, OK, I've got to cleanse the system. You, you are supposed to come off very slowly. What, what happened? Well, I suppose what happened was that I haven't really needed it since then. One of the nice things, I think, is that I know it's there. I know it's there and for me it worked. I would always rather not take it. I don't like taking anything. If I have a headache, I will never take it, you know, uh, paracetamol. I just don't like taking stuff generally. So that was quite a big step for me to take something. I think it's important to know when you need that. Take it if it works for you. Well, why not? If I have a sore knee, I will bandage it up, you know, to make walking easier. If I cut myself, I will put some antiseptic on a plaster on it. I think we should see these things a little bit in that context. And just to support you in that, it's when we kind of first accept where we are 
releases us to move forward. It's when we're caught up in ourselves and we're kind of feeling bad and we're failing. That's when it's difficult to get anywhere. Conversely, if we accept actually what's going on, we can begin to take the steps out of it. Yeah, but also we're understanding more about how things like oxygen and, and glucose do affect neurons in the brain. There are alternative treatments, and I think just things like you know breathing exercises can be very efficient. This sort of relates to a point earlier on about about chocolate and getting glucose into the brain. You know, and this is also why exercise is recommended as a good way to try and deal with depression and, and anxiety because essentially you're boosting delivery of a natural fuel to the brain, oxygen. And that links in really neatly with the question that Sir Ben DeGamo has been in touch with, saying, what effect does exercise have on the brain? I can talk, I think, uh, reasonably about the effect of exercise on mood because I very often say to people, you know, if you're feeling low, feeling anxious, feeling kind of under stress, get some exercise because we know it has, you know, profound and evidence-based effects on mood and whether it's walking cycling and i think that's one of the profoundly hopeful points out of all this that actually the brain probably it's not a fixed structure moods aren't fixed they're fluid and it's very hopeful because we can do a lot ourselves to change them in a positive direction and what effect exactly does exercise have on the brain so martin mentioned increased oxygen to the brain and that can obviously be quite helpful to keep those nerve cells functioning optimally but what other effects can exercise have we often think of exercise as just to keep fit and keep the rest of the body healthy but it does have quite big effects in the brain it's been implicated in what we call neurogenesis and that's the ability to actually grow new neurons in certain areas of the brain Um, in the hippocampus which is heavily heavily implicated in learning and memory Um, there's some experiments on mice by um, professor rusty gage and he looked at mice in cages with running wheels and without And the mice that had access to these running wheels actually grew lots of new cells in the hippocampus. And this finding has been extended to humans, so a lot of neuroscientists will now jog. In terms of mood, actually, there's evidence that exercise can help speed up recovery from depression. And it's associated with good mental health as people age. And to some extent, there's some evidence that it can increase the availability of serotonin and noradrenaline, so chemicals in the brain that are implicated in mood. And as a lot of people know, then the exercise stimulates endorphin release. These are chemicals, and when they're released, they bind to receptors in the brain. And these receptors that they bind to are involved in pain signalling, and they actually disrupt pain signals that you get. And so they would reduce some of the feelings of pain that many of us get when we exercise hard. And whether that's actually um, about the feel-good that you get from exercise or whether that's that it, it takes away some of the pain, you, you can then benefit from the stimulation of, of some of the other chemicals like the serotonin in the brain isn't quite clear. Exercise <laughs> can flood your brain with feel-good factors and increase the number of brain cells that you have uh, and help with your learning memory. And also I found a paper where... Um, so stress exposure, which causes lots of release of this stress kind of hormone, cortisol... You can become resilient to that via exercise because exercise will increase this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, which helps protect against the cortisol stress effect, or at least in mice anyway. Increases your resilience, that's nice. But what about the fact that if you're feeling low, or if I'm feeling low, the last thing that I feel motivated to go and do is go out for a jog. And I love jogging most of the time. So how can you motivate yourself to go out and get these brain-boosting kind of positive effects of exercise? 
it's catch 22 and it is exactly that you know you when you're in that place you can't move you you just can't get out of the room you can't get off the chair let alone go for a jog and unfortunately that really does come down to the individual person I mean beyond having an app that bleeps at you or a phone that's going to ring or a friend that's going to bang on the door and say come for a run actually at the end of the day you have to get off the chair and you do and I always say to people just walk around the block walk down the road and back because once you've got out of the house and so many uh, mental health problems actually are just to do with uh, sort of cycles cycles of thought and once you're going in this cycle of thought you, you all you need to do is pivot you just need to pivot that train of thought which is going around and around onto another one and it could be the tiniest thing listen to a piece of music watch some comedy you know call a friend anything and it just it's you can almost feel it when that changes I feel my eyes change my whole mood changes because suddenly I'm not going down that really bleak thing and so the exercise thing is, is really a part of that just the very fact that you're doing that means that you're no longer going down one path you're going down another and you have to be the one to do that unfortunately and just to back you up in that, there's, there's uh, evidence going back a few decades now for a type of kind of uh, proto-CBT called a behavioural activation. So actually getting things going, different behaviours, being more active, you know, particularly exercise, that type of stuff, is known to be to be very good for mood. And the clinical mantra is kind of day-to-day really, is even if we don't feel like it, do it anyway. Because as you were saying, if you do it 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, you'll get the benefits. As has been suggested, it can be quite a futile gesture to tell somebody who's really in the depths of depression, for example, you know, to go out for a jog or to, to start eating healthily. But, you know, I think we can really sort of think about these things like other sort of physical um, attributes as well. So, you know, if you're, if you're overweight, you know, you, you can't go out for one jog, you know, and drop four inches off your waistline. <laughs> but you can prevent becoming overweight, you know, by, by exercising regularly. And I think this, again, gets to the sort of combination of, of using maybe pharmacological treatments, you know, to bring somebody out of the depths of depression, but then educating people on, you know, how to stay out of, of that state and how to avoid going into that state again. And that's where things like eating healthy and, and exercise, I think, are, are very useful. That's one of the things which can make depression worse in a way because, uh, not what you just said, but the idea of, of knowing what you know what you have to do. You know, this is what I keep saying to people over and over again. You know, you know nobody, actually nobody ever needs to read another magazine or, or you know, be told all of this stuff. We know this. And so it's the fact that you kind of sit there going, look, I know what I have to do, but I feel that I don't have the strength within me to do that. And that brings us back to the question, you know, about um, medication and intervention. If that's the crutch that you need in order to stand up, take that crutch. But you do actually, you still need to walk and no one's going to make you do that apart from you. And just to go back to the, to the point, because it's all about clinical change and, and psychological change, just that actually it's okay for that to happen in small steps to get impetus going slowly. Uh, and there was some, some research a little while ago saying that a new habit takes about 82 days to form. So actually, you know, we can be patient with ourselves as things get going. It's not instant. We can work at it. That's okay too. And Jonathan Michael has been in touch saying, if you're feeling anxious every day, is it considered an anxiety disorder? Should I go to the doctor? It happens to me. Most people probably are at least a little bit anxious every day. So we'll often get a kind of frisson of anxiety doing, doing various things. First of all, anxiety itself is, is complex. There are various different issues, you know, so it might be social anxiety. It might be a kind of panic-based problem. It could be a generalised anxiety dis- disorder, GAD. It could be tied up with other things, for example, like post-traumatic stress and a kind of ongoing sense of hypervigilance. Anxiety is, is complex. 
psychologically, one of the things that we're on the lookout for is is when the the worries are, are, are really chronic. If the anxiety is interfering markedly with our day to day functioning, and or we're worried about it, then it's a good idea to get some help. And it's another good idea to get some help because there's so much psychologically that, that we can do to reduce anxiety. And it's I mean it's quite a natural response actually anxiety as well, isn't it? It's something that we are we have evolved to experience it's part of the fight or flight response um so we've evolved to either fight someone something or someone that we're scared of a predator in the environment or to run away and i I remember when i um when i first started this job i was incredibly anxious when i had a particular interview to do and the main producer for the show ben said um "Mm, what you want to do is go for a quick walk around the block that might make make you feel better. That's kind of the flight response. Yeah. I was like, I came back in. I was like, I'm feeling a bit better, but not that much better. And he went, oh, okay, have a hug. <laughs> and that seemed to help it a bit. Well, I think anxiety is one of those those ones. You know, with psychological things, there's no you can't really measure it. I mean, what? How anxious? Those classic, you know, on a scale of one to ten, how anxious are you feeling? Well, I don't know four, maybe seven. I have no idea. You know, a leg is broken or it's not broken. We can kind of measure this. Psychological things are so much more diff- difficult. And as you were saying, you know, the, the, it's the point at which you can't go about your everyday life in a, in a normal way that you can't function in a normal way. That's the point where it's reached a, a problem them if you like if you can't function normally but yeah a bit of anxiety is completely normal and as you say really very useful in certain circumstances yeah it helped me prep for the interview in in that particular instance and I got a burst of adrenaline which I think helped in the interview but had that prolonged if that had been every single day then I think I would have had to have gone and sought some help yeah, I mean, if it is if it is a problematic thing for somebody, you know, it is interfering with their lives. I think it's also important to remember that, that they're not alone. Anxiety is one of the most common mental health problems in the UK. You know, you shouldn't feel that you have to struggle with it alone. Go and see your GP. They'll be able to talk to you. They'll be able to diagnose you with an anxiety disorder if that's the right thing to do or help you find other ways in which you can address any issues you're facing or ways to, to actually help you feel better and control that anxiety. So I think if you're ever at all worried about the way you've been feeling or the anxieties become really unpleasant and frequent, then just go and see a GP and they'll be able to offer advice that's specific to your needs and your circumstances. You know, from, from those comments that have just been made, I mean, just, um, it's sort of occurring to me that it seems that like, it is difficult to measure a psychological disorder like, like anxiety um, and, and to be able to appreciate when it becomes um, a clinical disorder rather than just a normal state of being, a normal um, you know, feeling of anxiety. And it seems like, although we, we can't measure it as clearly as physical pain, maybe it's a good idea to sort of think about it, you know, in, in analogy to physical pain. So if you had back pain, for example, you know, if you had some sort of niggling in your back, you know, most people would maybe let that settle after a day or two or whatever. But if that continued and, and started to impact on your daily routines, there would be a point where you'd think, OK, I'm going to make an appointment and go and see the, see the doctor now so maybe if people can think about it that way you know if this is actually having an effect and it's detrimental to your daily routine just think if, if this was my back or, or my knee would I make an appointment and, and if so yeah then, then, then seek help there are many many things that we can do actually with anxiety to change things around quite quickly some of them like exercise some of them like relaxation sometimes you can get results within uh, once or one within a few minutes, people can feel the difference, feel the heart rate going down, feel the physiological benefits of what we're doing differently. The reason I set up Hair Case was because when I had all the anxiety issues that I had, um, I found that when I started to talk about it with people, 
honestly, almost every single person I ever spoke to either said, oh, I had that too, or my friend, or my husband, or my child had that. And I thought, well, hang on, this is endemic. This is, And yet when I ask them, then, well, have you talked to anyone about it? They will always say, no, no, I never talk about it. And so, oddly enough, if you, you know, anxiety is, is the most common mental health disorder that we have in our society now, still nobody's talking about it, which is extraordinary. But that's going to change. I mean, I really think that's going to change. Most people hadn't heard about anxiety disorder even five years ago, particularly. Whereas now, it's, it's a little bit like a bipolar disorder, which again, no one had really heard about a little while ago. Now everybody kind of understands something of what it might be. I think that's great if we, if we can open that box and, and let people talk about it and then get help for it. Thanks to you, Katie Manning, and before that, Liz Fraser, Dr. Roger Kingley, and Dr. Martin O'Neill. And we'll be returning to our brainy panel later in the show to find out how much of our brain we have conscious control over. We'll be asking, is there such a thing as free will? And finding out what the best treatment is for obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. And if you've been affected by the issues in this programme or would like further advice or help, please consult your GP or mental health professional. Next, though, could sleep help you boost your learning power? We catch up with some neuroscience news for this month. So we've all heard the phrase sleep on it and there are many anecdotes from people such as students and musicians who find that getting a good night's sleep after studying or practising helps with learning. But what's going on in the brain? Its secrets are now revealed in research from scientists in America and China showing that nerve cells or neurons in the brains of mice grow new connections as they sleep that help them learn. Naked scientist Kat Arney caught up with sleep scientist Peter Oliver from Oxford University who started by explaining what's going on in our brains as we visit the land of Nod. The brain is very active when we're asleep and that's really the first point. So, so when we're asleep, it's not, not like the brain switched off. It's, it's, it's firing all the time, making new, making new contacts. And these new contacts the brain makes during, this, during the night how the cells connect to one another, uh, that's often called memory consolidation. Okay, the idea is that when we're asleep, the brain is active. If you like, it's replaying events that have happened during the day. And this will help us remember things for the future, both the next day and also also longer term. Okay, so this is memory consolidation. So this is a fairly, fairly new topic and a slightly controversial topic. Um, the evidence for memory consolidation is, is, is quite new in the field and relies on very complex experiments. But it's certainly true. There's lots of evidence that sleep is a very active process. Sleep's really important for our brains and it has a really useful function. And these new connections made when we're asleep are really important for us. OK, that's through the background behind it. So what have the researchers done in this paper? So what they've done is they've tried to understand a bit more about the structural elements in the brain that change um, when somebody's carried out a task. This, this is actually using mice. So the mice have been uh, trained on a simple, what's called a motor task, so a simple movement task. Uh, they were taught to walk on a rotating rod. So it's a bit like a, a toilet roll holder on, connected to a, to a motor and that rotates slowly and this allows the mice to walk along. Very simple, very simple task. But obviously, as they're doing the task, the brain is having to, you know, having to, having to learn the task and make new connections. And they showed that, that, that the brain was actually changing its structure. So very subtle changes in a very small um, group of, of new cells in the brain, some neurons in the brain were changing. And these, these, these new structural changes were called changes in dendritic spines, if you like. So this is basically new ways that the neurons can connect to one another. And then what they did is they let the mice have a normal night's sleep. And they look to see what happens the next day after a normal night's sleep. And what they found is that um, the, these particular structural changes were still being were still there after they'd had a normal night's sleep. So the so the fact that the neurons had, had been firing when they're asleep 
was promoting these new very small and subtle but important structural changes in these neurons. So these are like little fingers that help the nerve cells talk to each other? Exactly right. So this is absolutely crucial. So as, as you know, the, the brain is very, very complex and there's probably 100 billion neurons in, in, in a human brain and, and it's incredibly interconnected. So many neurons are connected to many, many others. It's a bit like you're standing in a large crowd and you decided to hold hands with the person next to you. You have to put your hand out first to do that and then that person will put their hand out and then, you, then you'll hold hands. Then you might do that to someone else and these, these are the way the connections are made in the brains. So if you like, a big crowd of people all holding hands in different combinations to allow, uh, to allow people to communicate. That's really what happens in the brain. It's important thing with this study is that they showed that having a normal night's sleep actually promotes these new connections in the brain and these new structures, these new connections are maintained for several days later and that's really the key thing. And I think why this is important is because it's now shown in real detail how how flexible and how new um, new structural changes occur during sleep and how that can affect uh, memory memory in the future. How do they know it was definitely sleep that was doing this? So what they did to try and control for sleep, they actually carried out some sleep deprivation experiments this is where they, they will actually uh, make sure that the mice don't sleep, sleep normally, they keep them awake and they carried out similar um, experiments in parallel. And what they showed that there's, that there's actually a reduction in the amount of the spine formation or reduction in the, the structural changes in the brain when the mice had had disturbed sleep. So there's definitely a strong link then between the quality of sleep, the type of sleep you, that, that these mice were getting and also the, the, the amount of these increase in these dendritic spines um, that are occurring overnight so there's definitely a strong link between the type of sleep the quality of sleep and also this this new um, structural changes in the brain so the idea is the better sleep you have the longer sleep you have and the more sleep you have in what's called the deep sleep or slow wave sleep this is more likely to allow new connections in the brain to occur now obviously when a story like this hits the headlines people are like oh is this relevant to humans these studies have been done in mice do you think they are going to be uh, relevant to humans Yes, certainly. So, so certainly the, the basic, what we know about the, the, the firing of the brain during sleep is very similar in most mammals. Um, the structures of the brain looked at in this particular study are, are very similar to those found in humans. So there's a direct correlation between the structures that are being examined. Certainly, um, um, rodent sleep is very similar to, to human sleep in terms of the type of sleep they get. The different phases of sleep are very similar. So although mice are nocturnal, um, compared to humans mostly being living during the daytime, the daytime hours, there's lots of direct parallels with humans. And certainly we know from lots of work that Having good night's sleep is very important for humans, both for their phys- physical health, but also for their mental health and, and for their and for the formation of new memories. So certainly, this has direct um, very important implications for for humans, both in disease situations, but also in just normal daily lives. So, for example, I'm a musician. So if I was trying to learn a piece, I should you know do some practice and then sleep on it and then do a bit more and that and that would be better than just kind of keeping going on it i think i think that's 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 kind of what this this uh this this kind of work is pointing towards i think there's a long way to go to really correlate directly between a physical activity one day a good night's sleep and improving your performance the next day on on very complex tasks but certainly this data shows that very simple tasks can actually be um, relate directly to to changes in the brain which might help you remember things in the future certainly with the um with the world cup coming up um you know if if the england team are practicing penalties every day as apparently they are as i heard from stephen gerrard today um and then they sleep sleep really well and practice penance the next day and then sleep really well the next day. It doesn't really guarantee they'll score when, against Italy or one of the other teams in the future. But certainly, I hope, the, I hope the team is sleeping well this week. That was Katani speaking with Peter Oliver from Oxford University on the power of sleep on boosting brain connectivity and learning, in mice at least. And that study was published in the journal Science. We next return to our panel with your questions. Pushka Nareshka got in touch asking, what's the ideal treatment for OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder? First up, Roger. 
OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, can be a very difficult and debilitating issue. Some estimates suggest that up to 3% of the population have OCD at some point in their lives. Often it's, it can, can be recurrent as well. It tends to occur when we have thoughts or images or um, repetitive ideas that come into mind intrusively and are quite distressing. And then in order to try and deal with them, often we feel compelled, that's where the compulsion comes in, to do certain things, perhaps engage in a ritual, whether that's internal, psychological, or whether that's something external uh, in the environment. So the, the typical stereotype of OCD, if you like, might be someone that has a fear of contamination with bugs in the environment. And so they might compulsively wash their hands and wash light switches, for example, and everything around them in order to take control of those bugs and make sure that they're, they're wiped out and therefore they're safe. That's, that's often the, the, the kind of way it works, although, of course, it's not restricted to... While it's very common to have uh, concerns about contamination and, and dirt and so forth, there are many other areas that, that it can affect in life. And at worst, you know, people can be spending a lot of their, their waking hours concerned with performing rituals. So it can be a, a, real, a real problem. But the, the good news is, is that there are treatments for OCD. So part of the treatment is going to be exposing oneself to the, the feared stimulus. So it might be a contamination example around like a dirty door handle and then resisting the urge to perform the, the rituals to it. And over time, very often, the level of anxiety drops down and some progress can be made. And typically what we'll try and do is clinically is take a particular line of work around a, a ritual and get the, the, the number of rituals down and achieve some symptomatic reduction that way and at least 50% of people respond well there's also evidence that uh, SSRIs can be helpful either as a standalone treatment or combined with um, uh, psychotherapy. So that's a, a type of antidepressant given with the cognitive behavioural therapy where you're exposed to the thing that you're frightened or obsessive about. Martin do we know much about what's going on in the brain of people that are affected by obsessive compulsive disorder? Yeah, so there's a, a basic circuit in the brain that is involved in normal behaviour uh, that involves an interaction between uh, deep brain structures uh, and, and prefrontal cortex. This is called the prefrontal basal ganglia loop system that is involved in normal behavioural control. We're all in engaging in that system at the moment. And I think the general idea is that there is a disruption to this system, the information processing capabilities of this, uh, this system in, in patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And I think most research nowadays is, is trying to really focus in on wh which part of that system and, or which parts, which constituent parts, have aberrant physiological behaviour in conditions like obsessive-compulsive disorder. Because essentially that's all it is. It's just it's a shift <laughs> In normal behaviour and, and so it's a shift in a normal circuit in the brain and I think a lot of treatment is trying to re-establish the balance in these circuits. And in fact the idea of putting an electrical impulse through an, through an electrode in, into a very specific part of the brain and there's actually this being looked at in OCD currently in an area called the ventral striatum which is involved in, in the loops that Martin was just talking about to alter the uh, connectivity and to alter the activity going on in different the brain there. But I think, it, again, it's important to note that obsessive-compulsive disorder has many different symptoms, and for each individual, I mean, it can present very differently. For some people, it really is about obsessive thoughts that can keep re-entering the brain, and for other people, it comes with those rituals and those behaviours. Any idea of a best treatment, it, it's never a one-size-fits-all. There's multiple different treatments available, and it's about working with a clinician to find the one that works for that individual. 
And next question, T.O. Gibson has been in touch saying, I'm pretty sure you tackled the myth of humans using only 10% of their brain. But how much of the brain do we consciously have access to and control over? What's the ratio of autopilot to consciousness? I'm not sure what the ratio is. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody is. It's, it's a very good question. The question itself actually kind of strikes at the heart of this myth. But we have to be aware that um, our brain is, is very busy constantly. You know, the fact that I'm sitting here upright at the moment is, is thanks to my brain power, you know, to, to processes that I'm not, well, I wasn't thinking of until just now. And breathing and heart rate and and, and also sensory processing. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you at the moment. I'm aware that you're in front of me. I'm aware this microphone is in front of my mouth. But if something was to happen in my peripheral vision, you know, or if a noise was to happen behind me, I would react to that. And that's thanks to my brain unconsciously processing this external environmental space, even though I'm not consciously aware of that. That's also true for these sort of internal signals that, that I've just referred to as well. There's a clinical aspect to this as well, because quite often we'll feel symptoms, whether it's kind of feeling low, anxious, depressed or otherwise stressed, but we might not know consciously actually what's driving that. There are ways of working with that stuff now, so whether it's, for example, hypnosis sometimes can be useful. I think this question then really is one about attention and what we are consciously attending to at any one time. So as Martin was saying, there's so much processing going on. It's there if we need to use it, but what we're actually attending to is the thing that we're focused on and the thing that's useful to us at that time. And there's also you know, other things that we attend to until we've learnt it and then it enters a more autopilot memory as well. So the brain's working away, but we're choosing what we attend to. And this has actually been useful in, in treatments, as Roger was saying, including like mindfulness and those sorts of ideas. And that's even been applied to things like eating behaviour. You know, if you sit in front of the telly and eat food, you don't realise quite how much you're eating, you don't attend to it, and you, you don't feel full so quickly. Whereas if you focus on what you're doing, you sit down around a table and you eat, you tend to, to eat less. And the myth that we only use 10% of our brain, where that's actually coming from imaging studies where you get people to do particular tasks, concentrate on something, and you can see the oxygen levels, so their blood rushing from some areas of their brain to other areas of their brain as they concentrate and attend to a particular task. But obviously, all of the brain tissue is needing a small amount of oxygen at any time in order to keep those cells alive and to keep things ticking over, even if you're not consciously aware of that. So now if we attend to the next question, which comes from listener Chris Oliver, who's been in touch saying, why do I hear and see things that aren't there? So he's a music composer and at times when he's relaxed or he's just about to go to sleep, he can bring voices or auditory hallucinations into his mind so he can hear things that other people can't hear. And he's asking what's going on there. Apparently this isn't uncommon. So I spoke to the head of the Department of Psychiatry at Cambridge University and he said that a recent study that's been published indicates that about 10%, so 1 in 10 older teenagers will actually experience the same thing these hallucinations, even though they're not actually psychotic so they haven't got schizophrenia but they are experiencing things that other people don't so what's going on there so conscious perception of sound results from the the processing of of sound waves by the the brain's auditory system in the same way the conscious perception of color results from the processing of, of light waves and and particles by the brain's visual system and these systems will be highly sensitised and people like, like Chris uh, who engage these systems in a frequent and highly specialised manner. 
when these systems can evoke a, a conscious perception, like a memory trace, of sensory input. And this is partly why people who have had limbs amputated feel phantom limb sensations, such as an, an itch or pain in, say, a hand that has been amputated. And that's because, despite the limb being gone, and the brain apparatus is, is still there, so that can fire off and, and, and evoke these um, sort of conscious perceptions of something that's, that's not actually there. So he's kind of almost developed a highly sensitive, or maybe he was born with, a highly sensitive kind of auditory perception of sound system in his brain. And there's nerve cells that are being activated by things that he's not even consciously aware of. Are the sounds actually there, or are they coming from his imagination, from his head? I think maybe a good way to think about this is the old adage, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, nobody's there to hear it. Does it make a sound? Well, the answer's actually quite simple. No, it doesn't. It releases sound waves into the environment. And um, without a nervous system to take those sound waves and then process those sound waves through, also through, you know, the, the inner ear, through our auditory system outside of the brain, and then into the brain, we actually would not have what we, we know to be conscious perception of sound. So, yeah, he's experiencing, I guess, that is the same system in his brain that's becoming active without the environmental stimuli. I mean, this experience is, is a lot more common than many people expect. There's an understanding of mental health disorders as being extremes of, of experiences that people in the normal population or in the healthy population experience. But it's when these become problematic and affect the functioning in daily life that, that they become what we would refer to as, as a disorder. And one of these continuums is known as schizotypy. And it refers to the fact that, that many people in the general population sometimes experience similar types of experiences um, as people who have schizophrenia. So um, hearing and seeing things aren't there. Um, so hallucinations, which can happen in any sensory modality, including touch, taste. Some people are just more susceptible to these experiences than others. So it's a sort of scale with some people being more and some people being less schizotypal. It's important to emphasise that having these experiences is not the same thing as having a disorder. And there's a number of theories as to why people have hallucinations. One of these, quite a popular theory, suggests that it might stem from the sort of heuristics and shortcuts, predictions that people's brains use to help them interpret everything that's going on around them and to sort of select the information that's useful to them. So you monitor what your actions are, your deliberate actions, and use that to predict what's what you expect from, say, your own feedback. He writes that he only suffers from these hallucinations, these auditory sound hallucinations at night, so it's not intruding on his day-to-day -day life. It's an experience that he's also got an insight into, and so he can almost predict that it shouldn't be there in the environment, and it's unexpected that it is there in the environment, but he has that insight to know that it's not somebody outside in, the, in a space telling him to do something or, or producing a particular sound that might frighten him. And, and that um, a particular kind of, again, m manoeuvre can be very useful and clinically it's also a kind of, almost a kind of mindful detachment kind of mode. So it's just, whatever it is, it's just, just noticing it and letting it go rather than dwelling on it or over-interpreting it, just allowing it, the, the, the phenomenon to be there and letting, letting it pass. That, that can be very helpful. I think it's also interesting that Chris says this happens just before he's falling asleep because I, I kind of personally know when I'm falling asleep because my thoughts get very abstract. And again, I'm aware that I'm not going crazy, you know, although the thoughts do get very abstract and weird and strange. To me, um, you know, I've, I've got used to that. And, and actually, that's, I get quite happy when that happens because I think, OK, I'm falling asleep now. 
And I think there's a school of thought around hypnosis that when we're in that kind of trance-like hypnagogic type uh, state, uh, conscious controls come off a little bit. So, you know, I might think I'm actually playing, going to play for centre-forward for England. Um, but, of course, it isn't, it isn't true. But it's a, it's a well-recognised phenomenon. And very last question for the show. Tracy Mortar has been in touch with a biggie. She wonders whether there's such a thing as free will. What are your thoughts on that? Martin, do we have the choice to make decisions in our life or is it, or is it all predetermined? So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, if we could answer it here and now, we would all be getting a Nobel Prize. Um, it's, for me, one of the, um, well, the, the holy grail of basic neuroscience research today um, and that pun was intended you know for centuries the study shall we say of free will has really been confined to you know the area of philosophy and theology but I think now it's, it's almost impossible to think about the issue of free will without some sort of neuroscience input without some sort of physiological appreciation of decision making uh, mechanisms and that the central question is, you know, are, are our decisions a consequence of simply processing input through our brains resulting in, in output, which would be our behaviour, or derived from some sort of internal signal, you know, that comes from where we don't know. Um, so as, as a neuroscientist, the, the latter seems more unlikely because it's just so, it seems mythical, you know, where, where is this? And internal signal coming from. However, we can't absolutely say that that's, that's not the case until we can answer or, or provide evidence um, in favour of the former, you know, that our, our behaviour is under um, external environmental stimuli. I mean, my own view, and this is just a personal view, is that our brains, our neural circuits in our, our, in our mind are formed based on our experiences and those circuits change structure based on what we're exposed to and then the structure of those circuits actually decides for us how we're going to react to a given situation. So we'll react to a given situation based on our prior experiences of the world around us and how we perceive the world around us is based on our prior experience and so therefore everything almost is predetermined. That's just my own personal view. I don't know whether you've got anything to add to that. It's a it's a it's a great it's a great question, and I think you know if will without free and decision making without pure, I for one be out of a job um, t- tomorrow because I think it's you know we're not all Bertram Russell purely kind of logical beings, and I think you see that very much clinically because how we're feeling and what's gone on in our lives. To just go back to your point about prior experiences, can affect what we want to do and what we think we're going to do and our decision making can affect it enormously and one of the things that we see clinically is when we work with the issues both at the kind of current kind of symptoms level and at a deeper level going back is often you deal with say you know past trauma effectively it can really free up more effective decision making processes and make help people to think more clearly about actually what they do want to do with their own free will. I mean, I think you only need to look at the things that people working in marketing use to encourage us, sort of these sort of nudge techniques to encourage us to buy. I mean, things as simple as in the UK, we would normally scan a shelf from left to right. So you put the product that you really want someone to choose on the right hand side. You know, these sort of very simple things that so powerfully affect even very small decisions that we make. I think you're right in, in terms of, you know, the experiences that we have been exposed to will affect the way our brains develop. And that will also affect the experiences that we then go on to have in the future and, and the situations that we choose to be a part of and yeah it, it sort of has this cycle yeah and, and without trying to be controversial you know from from a purely neuroscience perspective I mean, you know it, it, it is conceivable 
that w- what we have developed through evolution with the, the, the complexities that have developed in the, in the human brain, you know, have produced the illusion of free will, you know, this idea that we, we have free will, which, you know, sort of drives us forward, um, you know, and, and gives it gives us things like hope, you know, and um, and maybe to put that more on a sort of physiological basis, you know, our prefrontal cortex, you know, is the most evolved part of, our, of, of the human brain compared to, to other species. And what we have evolved that other species don't have is things like, you know, appreciation of, of beauty and creativity and we can produce beautiful music and, and works of art, um, arguably personality. Is again, it's just it's conceivable that, you know, this could be a consequence of this very complicated, intricate network of, of neurons at, in the brain. So, so it's, again, conceivable that, that the input, that the environmental information that we receive from, from birth or even pre-birth, you know, is processed in such a complicated manner that the output that what we see as behaviour is simply an output of a very, very complex piece of machinery. Um, and that would be the deterministic argument against the existence of free will. But whether or not that's the case, we, we, we really don't know. And so this big prefrontal cortex that humans have evolved to have is basically just a big processing unit that allows us to bring in lots of information from prior experiences and prior environments and the current environment and process that quickly in order for us to come up with a decision outcome. That, that could be the case, yeah. That could be. And I, I mean, I also think it depends at the level that you want to analyse this question at, or look at this question, or, or you know, in terms of things like vision. I mean, we don't see every single thing that enters our visual field, and we use some sort of quite high-level uh, expectations and impose these expectations and predictions to actually see things sometimes that aren't that make the most sense in terms of what we're expecting, but aren't quite exactly what's there. What's there? I mean, the hollow mask illusion, which you can see on YouTube, is one of them. I mean, yes, these things might have huge influence on on the, the decisions that we make, but we still have that feeling that we that we're doing things, and those feelings, and those that hope, and that anticipation, um, and the idea of weighing up those decisions. And to end the podcast on a slightly more positive, hopeful note. From a clinical perspective, one of the things that we're interested in is increasing people's uh, options and choices because one of the things we know is, is when we're stressed, low or depressed, one of the, we're, we're, we often feel like we've got very constrained choices. At worst, we can feel trapped, and that's a very unpleasant way to feel. So there are various ways of either kind of manually setting out the options that, that we might, uh, courses that we might choose to follow, or using things like meditation that probably do changes at a neurophysiological level via which means we can see that there are different avenues, different new and different things that we can do that can ultimately lead us to feel better. So actually, um, you know, it's, it's taking into account, there might be a processor in there, but it's actually about looking at the, the complexity, the, the whole context to see the, the available options that are, that are there for us. And that's all we have time for this month, unfortunately. Thanks to all those who took part in the programme. Martin O'Neill, Catherine Manning, Roger Kingley, Liz Fraser, Kat Arney and Peter Oliver. I'm Hannah Critchlow and we'll be back again next month with the next Naked Neuroscience podcast to open our minds. I'm going to be reporting from Milan with the breaking hot neuroscience news that is being presented at the Federation of European Neurosciences conferences. You can subscribe for free to Naked Neuroscience podcasts on iTunes or you can find us on thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience.
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.